It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's edition is about the war in Ukraine, six months after the Russian invasion. My guest is Phillips O'Brien, Professor of Strategic Studies at St. Andrews University. At the beginning of the war, when most analysts expected Russia to win easily, Professor O'Brien was one of the first analysts to cast doubt on the capabilities of the Russian military. So, six months in, is the war now at a stalemate? Or might Russia actually lose? One of the most dramatic recent developments in the conflict has been a series of Ukrainian attacks behind Russian lines, including a destructive raid on a Russian base in occupied Crimea, witnessed by startled tourists on a nearby beach. Last weekend, violence hit the suburbs of Moscow when a car bomb killed Dario Dugina, a nationalist journalist and the daughter of Alexander Dugin, a well-known far-right thinker. Dugin was saved by a last-minute vehicle change as he left a cultural event. His daughter, Daria Dugina, took his place and the bomb that was probably meant for him. Russia was swift to blame Ukraine for the killing, something the Ukrainians have vehemently denied. At the same time, there are questions over whether Ukraine has the manpower and the equipment to stage a long-promised counteroffensive against Russia. The Biden administration has had to fend off criticism that it's being too cautious in supplying weapons to Ukraine. Jake Sullivan, President Biden's national security advisor, explained the administration's thinking in an appearance at the Aspen Security Forum in July. We have moved billions of dollars of equipment in at, at what by any uh, kind of reasonable historical analysis would say is lightning speed, and we will continue to do so. There are certain capabilities the president has said he is not prepared to provide. One of them is long-range missiles, ATACMs, that have a, a range of 300 kilometers, because he does believe that while a key goal of the United States is to do the needful to support and defend Ukraine. Another key goal is to ensure that we do not end up in a circumstance where um, we're heading down the road towards a third world war. To understand how the war is likely to develop, I consulted Phillips O'Brien. I started by asking him for his assessment of the current state of the conflict. I mean, we're in this phase where the front line isn't moving a great deal, but I think we have to stop looking at the front line and seeing that as an indicator of exactly what the war is. In fact, the front line hasn't moved that much since April. I mean, the Russians made some small incremental advances in the Donbass. The Ukrainians regained a little territory in Kherson. But when you look at it within the context of modern war, the change in the front line for four months of pretty hard fighting is minimal. 
The big change, and I think what has happened in the war, is that there is a trend line that's been going on since the first day and continues to now. And the trend line is that Ukraine is getting better systems. So the Ukrainian army is better armed, better trained, and with more capability than it had on February 24th. The Russian army is less well-armed. It's losing a lot of its best equipment. It's losing its best soldiers. It doesn't seem to be training the new ones as well. So the war has been shifting through those trend lines more in Ukraine's favor. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy for Ukraine to knock Russia back. It does mean, however, the Russian ability to go forward does seem to be winding down. And Ukraine now has the ability to do some quite serious attacks behind Russian lines on Russian logistics, command and control. And we're going to see if they can set up the conditions for a Ukrainian advance. Yeah, I mean, that does seem to be the kind of latest striking development is these attacks that Ukraine has carried out, particularly in Crimea, on Russian military bases a long way behind the lines. What do you make of that? People talk about systems like HIMARS. And that's often, I think, why a lot of the pre-war analysis was wrong, because we looked at weapons. You have to look at what it is. What Ukraine now has is a range and accuracy advantage. It can hit things far more accurately than the Russians, farther behind Russian lines than the Russians have the ability to do that to Ukraine. The Crimea is the greatest example of this in terms of distance. I mean, they really are able to hit a long way behind Russian lines, and from what we can tell, hit very accurately. And that's one of the reasons there's this debate about what they used, because it was extraordinarily accurate, some of the hits. And what that has meant is that Ukraine has flexibility in what they attack. And what they've decided to do is instead of attacking the Russians directly, banging their head against the Russian front line, They're going to try and weaken it before they do anything. So it's really a case of depriving it of reinforcements, depriving it of supplies. And now, in some ways, we see signs that they're trying to attack Russian troop concentrations to damage the fighting spirit of of the Russian army. Meanwhile, this week, we've had this extraordinary bombing near Moscow, the killing of Alexander Dugan's daughter. The Russians have blamed this on the Ukrainian secret services. Now, people are talking about the Russians then using this as an excuse to further escalate the war, what kind of thing might they be thinking of doing or capable of doing? Well, this is an odd thing. I mean, because Putin's had plenty of excuses to escalate if he wants. And he's had plenty of excuses to mobilize if he wants. I mean, the Ukrainians have attacked Crimea. That was actually originally a red line for Russia. You know, Crimea is Russia in their mind. They've attacked Belgorod. They've attacked over the Russian border. So the Ukrainians have done things that had Putin been looking for an excuse to mobilize, they're far more powerful than the attack on Dugan's daughter, who was not a a huge influential figure in Russia. So I think we have to be careful and say, oh, this is now a false flag for Russia to escalate. They could have escalated at any time and they haven't wanted to. And I think it's more interesting as to why they don't escalate. Why Putin doesn't escalate, I think it's down to two things. One, he doesn't actually believe his population is willing to fight for this war if forced to. 
There's been a huge reluctance to go for conscription, mobilization, which you would normally do if you say you're in an existential fight for your life. I mean, there's a real weird disconnect between Russian rhetoric and the reality. Russian rhetoric is everyone's out to get us. The world is going to crush Russia. NATO is trying to destroy us. The United States, Britain, Ukraine are all part of this alliance to destroy Russia, but then they won't mobilize and they won't put their population under arms. And I think that reveals a great deal about the worries that actually they have about mobilizing. So I think they might use it to increase their domestic control. Putin is trying to stamp out enemies, and this is an old Stalinist trick, an old Bolshevik trick. You take advantage of something to crush your political opponents, even if they had nothing to do with it. But until they actually mobilize and start drafting the young men of St. Petersburg and Moscow and the Russian cities to go fight against their will, in many ways, I think this is more hot air than anything else. So to put it the other way, if you're skeptical that they will actually mobilize for the reasons you set out, how much trouble are they in? I mean, the picture you paint is of a Russian army that is, you know, incapable of going forward, that has taken enormous casualties and that is now facing Ukraine that's using more sophisticated tactics and weapons, can Russia keep it up? Well, they can't go forward anymore. I mean, Russia is running into its own problems now that it's running short of soldiers themselves. I mean, the Russian army isn't that large for trying to hold a really large and unwieldy piece of territory. You know, what they've taken from Ukraine is this sort of crescent moon shape, which has an enormously long front line and is very difficult to hold. And they went into the war with, what, 200,000 combat soldiers? Even by desperately scouring the country for soldiers here and there and, and raising mercenaries, they have to have a considerably smaller army now than the army they went in with. What is your estimate of Russian casualties? Well, the Pentagon said a week or two ago, between seventy and 80,000. And that was killed and wounded. And then, by the way, the spokesperson said, could be more, could be less. Uh, the Pentagon, when it comes to Russian casualties, has probably on the whole been conservative. They haven't been endorsing the Ukrainian figures, which are now at 45,000 dead. And if you added twice that wounded, would be over 100,000. But I think we can say that you know the Pentagon figures would be on the more cautious estimate end. But that's extraordinary. So essentially, if the Pentagon are right, they've lost almost half the fighting force they had at the beginning of the war. Oh, yeah. And often the best troops, too. I mean, a lot of the Russian losses have come in their sort of paratroop formations, their elite formations, the ones that have been fighting longest. This is a bloodbath for Russia. And if you do lose 70 or 80,000, you also have a lot more that are combat ineffective. You know, even if you haven't been shot, if you're in the Russian army and you've experienced this kind of combat for months, your combat effectiveness will be degraded. And I think that we see that now in a real reluctance to go ahead. The Russians' only advances in the last few weeks or months, really, have been where they've been able to just blast the area in front of them with artillery and clear the Ukrainians out and move into that area. If they can't blast an area free in front of them with artillery, they really don't seem to have the ability to advance. And a lot of that, you would assume, would be soldier reluctance, that they're just a bit worn out and they're not going to expose themselves to any kind of real firefight if they can help it. So to come back to the question before I interrupted, do you have a sense of how long they can keep this going? I mean, if they've lost half their force, as you say, some of the most elite troops, they're reluctant to conscript. 
They can keep going now, perhaps because they're going to stay on the defensive more and more. I think we can assume Russian offensive advances are over, except in a pretty small area. Being on the defensive is a little more manpower efficient. But the problem they're going to have is that they are trying to fight this war by generating troops without mobilization. They're paying big bonuses. They're paying money. That might keep them going for another six months, maybe into next spring, summer. But you can't see them getting through, say, another summer campaign, a really difficult, bloody summer campaign based on generating these troops from here and there and basically forcing people to fight for them. That's not going to work. So they might get through the winter and into the spring, but it's hard to see a major summer campaign based on the troop strength they have now. But what about the other side, the Ukrainians? I mean, they were openly saying they were losing a couple of hundred people a day at the height of the fighting in the Donbass. They're a smaller country. Some of the most productive land, industrial land is occupied or destroyed. How much longer can they keep going? Well, they they actually probably have more soldiers under arms now than the Russians. They went into it with, I think, was it eighty to 90,000 in the regular army, but they had 400,000 reserves. And Ukraine has mobilized. And the Ukrainians have conscription. If you're a young person in Ukraine, you're probably in the armed forces unless you are in some kind of position which allows you not to go. So in terms of numbers of soldiers, Ukraine probably has more fighting in Ukraine than the Russians have. And by the way, we did get the first Ukrainian admission of casualties for a while, and they said about 9,000 killed, which again would be wounded twice that, somewhere from two to three times that, one would assume, in wounded. So Ukrainian losses would be around 30,000 if they're telling the truth. It might be a little bit higher, so that certainly is quite considerable losses for Ukraine. But the issue they're going to have is not numbers of soldiers. The issue they're going to have is getting them trained. I don't think, by the way, we're paying enough attention to things like the training exercises that are happening in the UK, in Poland, even in Germany, that Ukraine is taking time to train its soldiers. Now, that means that they can't fight for a while, but I think the Ukrainians have decided that's a sacrifice worth making. The Russians don't seem to be training. They just seem to be getting these people, giving them a few weeks, and then sending them to the front line. Now, one would think the longer the war goes on, the training advantage will start helping Ukraine. And they'll need it because if they do want to try and go forward, say, in the Kherson area, you're going to need well-trained and motivated soldiers to do that. Do you see preparations for an offensive in the Kherson area going on? I mean, they seem to be essentially trying to isolate the Russian troops on that bank of the river. Yeah, the offensive is underway. It's just we have to change our mindset about what an offensive is these days. We have an idea of an offensive, and I think most people who think about what war is, they have an idea of offensive that has come out of the Second World War. And by the way, was reinforced by the U.S. Army in the Gulf War I and Gulf War II, the two invasions of Iraq. And that is this idea of a mass armor breakout, sundering the lines, surrounding the enemy, forcing them to surrender, and achieving what you want with sort of a lightning attack. That's not happening here. And maybe it actually couldn't happen anywhere except with the U.S. I mean, from an analytical point of view, I think one of the most interesting things is that the U.S. experience has been deeply deceptive 
to our understanding of war. Basically, the U.S. can do things because it has spent so much money and built so many systems. The U.S. can do things that just no one else can. And one of the problems we have with the Russians is certain people looked at them as sort of a smaller version of the U.S. They're nowhere near it. They're not in the same league. The Russian armed forces are generations behind the U.S. armed forces when it comes to war. So what the Ukrainians are doing is probably more typical of what state-to-state war would be like. Going forward is a problem in the way war has developed, that the tank is far more vulnerable than it was. They can't gain air superiority. So the kinds of things you would need to do to have, say, a Second World War kind of offensive That's not going to happen for Ukraine. So what they're doing, the offensive is underway. They've actually been open about it. Our offensive in Kherson is underway. But it's starting with a long period of degrading Russian forces before they do anything. It's one of destroying logistics, destroying command and control, taking down the bridges, taking down the rail lines weakening Russian forces to such a degree that an attack can succeed later when they decide to do it. Now, in the US, which has been obviously critical to supplying the Ukrainians with the most important weapons, including the HIMARS that you referred to, the missiles, there's now been open criticism of the Biden administration by some pretty senior former military people, including Philip Breedlove, the former Supreme Commander of NATO, saying that they're being too cautious in what they're giving the Ukrainians. What is going on there? Well, it's been it's interesting. It's a great question because to begin with, there were some people, of course, saying from the more Trumpist wing, oh, they're being far too supportive of Ukraine and yeah, this is going to escalate to nuclear war. It's far more dangerous. Those voices are less intense than they were. And the real pressure has gone up to say, well, why are we holding back? Why is the United States not giving the long-range ammunition? Though it might be. (laughs) There's a whole question about whether the U.S. is being actually honest about what they are giving to Ukraine. But why aren't they giving them, say, fixed-wing aircraft or more advanced anti-air systems? So that's an interesting one. I think it is interesting to see how the voices on help Ukraine more are in many ways becoming more vociferous. Now, the Biden administration has been in certain ways very supportive of Ukraine, but very supportive up to a point. And the up to the point is they've been giving them things to basically damage the Russian army in Ukraine. And they've been very effective without the Ukrainians. It's now whether they want to start giving them more of the kinds of weapons that would allow the Ukrainians to have, you might say, a more aggressive counterattack. And the Biden administration seems to be heading in that direction, but very, very slowly. And there are those who think, you know, the Russian army is on the ropes. This is the time to attack them. This is the time when they're actually in serious trouble. And that's what we're seeing play out. And I would say it seems to be having a modest effect on the Biden administration, but they're not changing overnight. But one of the striking things to me is the threat of the use of nuclear weapons is something that Putin has constantly waved around. How seriously do you take that threat? Well, I don't believe there will be a nuclear exchange out of this because I don't see what Russia gains by it. But they need to have the threat. And in many ways, I think, of course, Putin's perhaps over-threatened or the Russian media has over-threatened the use of nuclear weapons. But at some point you talk about it so much that it actually loses its impact. The issue with nuclear weapons, if the Russians really want to go down that road, is do they want to end the world, which is one of the horrible fallouts about that? 
But if they don't want to end the world, what do they gain from it? They would start a nuclear exchange on their own army, or their own army is in Ukraine. They would be fallout that would hit Russia itself. Their ally, I mean, I can't believe the Chinese, who are, by the way, the decisive power for keeping Russia in the war, Russia couldn't fight without China right now, would be ecstatic about a nuclear war breaking out in Ukraine. This is not anything China wants. So might Putin do it out of desperation? I think there's a tiny but not nil chance of it, but I think it's quite unlikely. So looking at the other things that might improve Russia's situation. You mentioned that they can get through the famous Russian winter and problems might really begin to pile up in the spring. Mm. Europe's problems economically are clearly going to pile up in the winter. There's talk that, you know, the lights may go out in Germany, indeed in Britain. We've got 18% inflation, or not possibly, on the horizon in the UK, a lot of it driven by energy prices. Do you think that really is almost Putin's last hope, that Europe loses the will to continue, can't cope with the economic fallout, and puts pressure on Ukraine to settle and indeed cede some territory. Well, I mean, it would be interesting because partly this war also has to change our perception of what matters within Europe. I would say the thing that's come out of this war that is quite striking, almost stunning, is the rise of Eastern Europe, the Baltic states, and Scandinavia. And they have a very different view of Russia. The Baltics, Poland, Finland, Sweden, or in NATO even Romania, are not going to stop their support of Ukraine because of the price of oil. They're just not. I mean, to them, this is an existential threat. What Germany and France do, in many ways, is less important than we thought. We thought they would really matter going into this war. But what's interesting is how they haven't mattered to Ukrainian resistance. If Ukraine is still going to be supported by the U.S., they really need American support. That's the foundation of their resistance beyond their own ability to fight, which is number one. So if you, beyond Ukrainian resistance, one, they need the U.S., and then they need the Eastern European states with the Baltics and the Scandinavians and the U.K. So the U.K. is you know, outside of the Eastern Europeans, I think, been by far the most important state in backing them. It's hard to see under a trust government that we assume will be in power that that would weaken. So I wouldn't get that focused on Germany at this point, because Germany hasn't aided Ukraine that much. Look at the states that are aiding them and say, will they be willing to change sides because of a bad winter? And I think those states, it is very unlikely that they will. Okay, to finish, I mean, I know that war is inherently unpredictable. Very few people, with the possible exception of you, actually, predicted that the Russians would fail so badly in their effort to get to Kiev. So, by all means, decline this last question. But if you had to predict where we'll be in the next six months, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I think the Russian army is going to get in very bad shape. And it depends whether Putin actually mobilizes his people and sends a large army in to try and hold it. My guess is Ukraine will get better and better at degrading the Russians. It's not going to be a blitzkrieg. You're not going to see you know, the Russian lines be sundered by a large armored advance. But when the Russians stop going forward, and they seem to stop going forward, they then become targets. And they have a line that's there, and they become a target behind the line. And Ukraine will be better to hit that. And so I think the Ukrainians will continue what they're doing, which is attriting the Russian down. If the Russians don't mobilize, I don't see how they hold. It just doesn't seem to me possible. 
So it's at some point that Putin will either have to mobilize his population or he's going to have to pull his army back or his army itself will lose the ability to hold the line and be forced back by the Ukrainians. So I would think it's hard to see the Russians going forward anymore. The question is what the Ukrainians can do going forward. They will continue attriting the Russians and then Putin has to decide how he's going to respond. That was Professor Phillips O'Brien of St. Andrews University in Scotland ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening, and please join me again next week. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.